You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Dr. Jarrell Robinson. Jarrell serves as director of the Educational Opportunity Program at SUNY Westbury. Born in Harlem in the 70s, Jarrell lost both his mother and stepfather to addiction when he was just 12 years old. Now, while he wasn't necessarily given the resources to process that trauma, his father did provide a stable home for him after his mother's death. Jarrell didn't think about college until his senior year of high school, but the Educational Opportunity Program was pivotal in facilitating his eventual acceptance into SUNY Oswego. And he would stay there for graduate school because, by his own admission, he wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do next. But Jarrell eventually found his career path. Today, he holds a doctorate of education degree in executive leadership, and in addition to raising two kids of his own, Jarrell is the director of the same program that afforded him the opportunity to pursue higher education. He oversees student support initiatives that provide access, academic support, and financial aid to students who show promise for succeeding in college, but who may not have otherwise been offered college admission. Talk about things coming full circle. So here's his story. Jarrell, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So we were talking about, before we hit record here, the challenges of like this virtual thing and Mm -hmm. you may have your background set up and you all straight and then life gets in the way, other people in the house, this is the whole thing that happens. But I love what you said, which now I'm just going to put it on the record, is that you're bringing your authentic self to the conversation, which is what we love. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we we push through the challenges of technology, people doing whatever they do in the house while we're trying to record here. <laughs> right. uh, so we understand. We, we okay. definitely get it. So let's I get into it. appreciate that. No problem. Who is Dr. Jarrell Robinson? That's a good question. And um, I'm not sure exactly how to answer it, but I would say Dr. Jarrell Robinson is an educator, a father, uh, a friend, an inspirer, and an optimist. An optimist. Now, I'm just going to latch on to that that word optimist, because knowing a little bit about your childhood growing up in Harlem, particularly mm-hmm. during the crack era mm-hmm. to to and some of the things that you've experienced to hold on to optimism. Right. And, and have right. that now in your adulthood is no small feat at right. all. So where do you think that optimism comes from? Struggle and mm-hmm. having experienced so much pain or dysfunction or, or things in the community that, that, that struggle, I guess that's the word having experienced so much struggle. I think that's where that optimism comes from because I've seen so much negativity that there's nothing else left, but to be optimistic. It's kind of like, you know, when they say, when you hit rock bottom, there's nowhere to go, but up same concept. So what's your earliest recollection um, of of that, of struggle, being like, this life is not normal? Um, my earliest recollection is probably my parents separating. Mm. They weren't married, but they separated um, while I was at an early age. Um, and I think that would be my earliest recollection of that struggle, just having to adapt to that new situation of not having both parents in the home. 
And how old were you then? I was five. Five. Okay. So five years old, your parents go their separate ways, but were you still connected to both households? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I still maintained a, I I stayed with my mother. I lived with my mother, but I still maintained a close relationship with my father. So what was that like growing up at that time? Your dad has left the home, but you had the relationship with him, but you are growing up and what many know to be a difficult environment. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about Harlem in the seventies. Right. Like that's not a game. So what was that like for you? It was interesting because I had a stepfather. So my mother, you know, um, had started a relationship with another man and um, he was actually in the home. So it was really understanding how to navigate these different relationships with um, two men that were kind of, uh, what's the word, that I looked at as father figures um, and negotiating how to manage that. That was a challenge. I would say that was challenging. But at some point I figured out that both of them had love for me mm-hmm. as well as my mother. So it wasn't as difficult as time went on. And I think what also helped is they were respectful towards one another. What made it so challenging in the beginning though for you? The bond that I released, the bond that I had developed with my father and my biological father and my mother and that being kind of uh, separated, mm-hmm. that bond being broken. Um, now my father wasn't in the house on a regular basis. Uh, if I had to see him, it was more on a weekend situation or he would come pick me up after school, things of that nature. So mm-hmm. that that's where that came from. So, you know, we all know that growing up in this era in New York, a lot of what was going on out in the streets really affected people's families mm-hmm. in one way, either immediate family or extended family. Was that your experience? It was my experience um, growing up. My mother was a domestic wife, I guess you could say. She didn't work. Um, We were on public assistance, so there was some struggles there. My stepfather uh, was working, but not on the books, I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, My father had a regular nine-to-five job. I wouldn't say he brought in a lot of money, but there were a lot of vices also in the community. The drugs, the, the crime. Um, the violence that my parents were able to, for the most part, shelter me from, but Mm -hmm. I still got a decent amount of exposure to it. And then, so when you say exposure, was that because of what was going on outside or what was going on inside your your homes? A little bit of both. A little bit of both, actually. Um, There there was a little bit of, of it in the house as well as outside, more so in the community, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always wonder, like, you know, DeMarcus and I, a um, brother, we always talk about being in New York and you see these kids who are like seven, just on mm-hmm. the train, going to school, like a level of autonomy that you would never see in suburban neighborhoods. So was that your experience early on, just kind of having to grow up pretty quickly? It was. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny you referenced being on the train before the age of 12. I was riding the New York City subway system from Harlem to Coney Island, which is quite a distance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with friends, I would go to the movies. And and again, this is at a very young age. Um, I was out in the streets just, you know, being a kid, at least or at least that's what I thought I was doing. Um, I did have rules. I did have a curfew. I did have um, my mother was strict. But at the same time, 
there was a sense of community that allowed young kids to kind of be free because you knew at some point somebody always had eyes on you. Mm. So it was but so much that you could do. Or if you were going to do something that wasn't up to par, you did it in secrecy because you knew that it would get back to your parents. But in terms of that freedom and ability to move about the city, yeah, I was downtown Manhattan. I was in other boroughs um, all over Harlem. And again, this is a, this is before the age of 12. But I think it's important to highlight that sense of community where there were still eyes on you because we talk about that within Black communities, but I think it's more so, you talk about it within the context of the South mm-hmm. or suburban areas. You don't really hear that a lot when people are talking about those who grew up in the five boroughs, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is much more concrete jungle, every man for himself. I was just out there, which is a false narrative. There, mm-hmm. there is a, a, There was a collective at the time um, where, where on the one hand, yes, it was very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot happening, but I do think that there was a safety and security in that, uh, whatever your village was, they looked out for each other. Right. I, I'd agree on that. You, you really, it was really about as a young child kind of learning how to navigate the landscape. Mm-hmm. So you, you, your parents kind of instilled in you what to avoid, um, what to look for, because they had to. So you kind of took those messages out into the street when you weren't with your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, So to a certain degree, you knew how to move um, and where to go and where not to go. It was really about choice. If you Mm -hmm. decided to to heed their warnings or kind of stray off a little bit and do what you wanted to do. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to obviously get there later in the conversation about you Mm -hmm. being a dad. But I want to ask here, when you've had that experience of being out in the world that early, how does that inform how you parent? Like, I, I know some parents who had that experience and now their kids are super sheltered and they're very protective and strict. And others who are kind of like, I turned out okay. I'm mm-hmm. going to give, you know, my kids some freedom as well. That, how has that influenced you as a dad? <clears throat> it's conflicting mm-hmm. because for me, the way I look at it is that was me understanding how to survive as a young child. But also as I became older, Um, I understand that there was some trauma that took place in that experience. So as a father, understanding how to survive at a young age, you want your children to also understand how to survive certain situations, but you also want them to experience what you may consider a normal childhood. So there's a a balance you have to strike there and kind of figure out what's what's the best course for them in terms of growing up. Do I want them to have this this experience where they don't have to deal with certain things that I had to deal with growing up? Or do I want them to understand how to how to how to accept and deal with certain struggles growing up? And and that's tough. That's tough because you 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 want your children to be able to to a certain degree defend themselves. They shouldn't have to. That's what the parents are there for. And that's what the community is there for, to look out for them to defend themselves. But at certain points, there may come a time where they have to be able to defend themselves on their own. So it's hard sometimes not to place my experience on them and allow mm-hmm. them to have their own childhood and develop um, the best way that they're going to develop in, in, in their context, in their, in their environment. Because their sure. environment is, is completely different from what I grew up in. And that's what I was going to say, right? They're under a whole different set of circumstances 
than you are. And of course, those pathologies and things that we've experienced impact us even when we've created a different life, right? Or are striving to create a different life for the generation that comes behind us. Um, but even despite those differences, I, I understand, particularly when you've experienced a certain level of trauma, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and how that really informs parenting, right? And, mm-hmm. and wanting to just protect your kids as much as possible because you know the gravity of what you've experienced. Right. Which is a great, which is a great segue. Um, talking about the trauma that you've you've had in in, in your life, um, life changed for you pretty drastically, and mm-hmm. uh, in, in that and at a very formative time. Um, we're talking about those getting ready to enter your teen years. What happened? So, when I was twelve, my stepfather actually passed away um, in April, and in July, my mother passed away. Same year. So fortunately, I had a, like I said earlier, I had a close relationship with my biological father. So I wound up moving to a different part of Harlem and living with my father and continuing, you know, my education and and development and growth, uh, living with my father from the age of 12 until uh, 17 when I left for college. So to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, Mm -hmm. what happened that you lost Two, essentially two parents, stepfather, right. but still parent. Right. In that short time frame. Uh, both of my parents passed away from substance abuse. Mm. And it wasn't something that was necessarily uh overt. Um, it was it was it was low key. Um, but I, I had a sense to a certain degree of of what was going on. So I I knew, but at that time, I didn't see the impact that it had on me day to day. You understand what I'm saying? So it wasn't something that was completely out there that I saw or anything like that. So it was, it was, it was done kind of in the background. Yeah. And I, you know, it's important, I think to, to stop there because when we look at now, there's all these documentaries and shows that are really exploring this time, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in, in New York city. And you always have these stories of people hitting a rock bottom, losing their families, being completely estranged from the people that love them. Mm-hmm. Their whole, you know, their entire life has fallen apart. But there was, and there continues to be, another uh, another category of person who struggles with addiction, and and it's those who you might know what you know something is going on, but they're still functioning in a way where, like you said, it is really in the background. So talking to you, you know, talking to you and thinking back to like you being age 12 and mm-hmm. you have this first experience of losing your stepfather, having had that experience, which, of course, is bringing that trauma to the forefront. Did you have any cognizance of at that point of this is something that has happened? And I'm afraid that it could happen again. Did you connect those dots with your mom? No, not at okay. all. Not at all. She um, no, there was no sense that that next occurrence was going to happen so soon. My mom and I had a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, she really nurtured me and instilled some very important values at a, at a extremely early age. You know, she taught me how to take care of myself, the importance of um, being able to take care of myself and not necessarily depend on um, someone later on in life. So I think they were learning how to cook or learning how to prepare meals, maybe learning how to iron my clothes, learning how to sew a button, you know, just 
basic things like that, that some young men, unfortunately, don't have the opportunity to learn how to do because mm-hmm. they're, and I don't want to generalize, but some of us have been coddled at, at a young age and we don't get those experiences to learn how to kind of take care of ourselves the way we should. Um, so I was fortunate to have that experience. So um, the connection that my mother and I had was very strong and there was no indication that anything was going to happen to separate us or, or, or bring about that type of change. Do you remember the day you find out, found out that your mother was gone? Yes. Talk to, walk me through that experience. Um, so it, 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 it goes back to a couple of days prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember there was a particular evening I was outside. It was a school. A, no, it wasn't a school night. It was summer because it was July. Um, it was summer. I was hanging out uh, actually in the supermarket across the street. I was packing bags and uh, I came home. I came back upstairs. We lived in an apartment on St. Nicholas Avenue in Harlem. And uh, I came upstairs and my mother was in the apartment on the couch, but she was somewhat unresponsive. Um, so my first reaction was to call 911. Mm-hmm. Um, I called 911 and the second call I made, I believe was to my father and to my godmother. And at this time I'm only, this is, I was 12 years old. Uh, so, you know, the ambulance came and everything, paramedics came, my father came, godmother, well, I stayed, no, actually my father didn't come. I stayed with my godmother that evening. Um, and he took my mother to the hospital and my father came and picked me up the next day. And we went to the hospital to check on her and, you know, went to visit her a couple of days. And there was one particular day where we went to visit her and she wasn't able to communicate. She couldn't talk, um, but she was attempting to kind of write something, but she didn't have the strength or, or, or coherence to actually communicate whatever it was that she was trying to communicate. Um, but we stayed there with her for a little while. and left after visiting hours were over. And it must have been maybe the next day or two days later uh, in the morning, my father had informed me that my mom had passed away. And interestingly enough, there were no tears mm. in that moment. I didn't, I, I, as far as I can remember, I, I didn't cry in that moment. The tears maybe came later, but it was probably just kind of shocked and trying to figure out what had happened or what I was going through. Mm-hmm. So you experience this like a tremendous amount of loss for anybody, let alone mm-hmm. somebody who's 12 years old, is now decided that you're going to go live with your father. Two part question. The first okay. part is we're, we're often when these things happen, people kind of make sure you're OK, but mm-hmm. there's not like grief counseling or anything like that. So was your father, anyone else checking in to say, all right. We need to make sure Jarrell is able to heal from this and able to grieve properly. What, did that happen at all? Formally, no. Okay. Mm-mm. Not and in a formal the- setting. I think my my father did his best attempt to fill in mm-hmm. um, and make sure that I was okay. But in terms of any type of formal counseling or, or therapy, no. And then how was the adjustment to now living with your father full time? Very different because my mother was the nurturer. Mm. my father was more of the teach you how to be a man and not in a negative way, but he had to say, and I'm going to give you enough rope to hang yourself. Mm-hmm. So he gave me freedom and I was living in a different part of Harlem. So, so the, 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 the environment was different. 
where I originally grew up or when I first went, the part of Harlem that I lived in until my mother passed away um, is a section called Sugar Hill. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it has a, a lot of history to yes. it, um, particularly as it relates to maybe the Harlem Renaissance and, you know, the black church and things like that. So it, it's a more affluent part of Harlem. When I moved with my father, uh, we moved into an apartment that my grandmother had lived in. Um, at the time, she uh, was in a nursing home. So my father took her apartment. And this is more West Harlem, more Central Harlem. So the, the vibe is completely different. Um, I'm getting adjusted to a new set of friends. My father at the time was in a relationship and got into another relationship after that. And I winded up living with my father and my stepmother. So that, that was a, that's a whole other dynamic, but it was different in the sense that I think I really had to learn how to navigate differently mm -hmm. because the, the, the things that I saw in this section of Harlem were different from what I saw in Sugar Hill. That, that, that community, the Sugar Hill community, I had more eyes on me because people knew me from the time I was born until my mother passed away. This, this here, the only uh, sense of safety I had was my father. I didn't know anyone. No, no one knew me. I was new to the, to the, to the building and things of like that. So it, it was different in that sense. So how does that impact you now? Cause you, you, you're dealing with the grieving process for all intents and purposes, mm -hmm. whatever that looks like for you at that age. Um, you've now lost the nurturing that you need more mm -hmm. than ever because mm -hmm. of what, what you, the trauma that you've experienced. Um, and you're now living with a dad who, you know, is, is, is a primary caregiver, obviously cares about you, but wants you to spread your wings and grow into your manhood mm -hmm. as well. So how are you feeling at this time trying to navigate this whole different uh, set of circumstances? A little confused, mm -hmm. a little anxious, but also holding on to the values that my mother instilled in me mm -hmm. about you can do anything that you put your mind to, not her not wanting me to have to depend on someone else. I think those things kind of helped me kind of get through a little mm -hmm. bit, but it, it was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge because you, I had to make new friends. I had to I continue going to the same school. So that helped because I only had one year left of uh, primary school. I went to Catholic school uh, through 12th grade. So I finished my last year of, of grammar school at the same school. So I still was able to maintain that sense of normalcy after that summer. I went back to, you know, finish my um, last year or grade eight before I went on to high school. But it, it, it had its challenges. It had its challenges. So now we look at, you're not, you're no longer Jarrell, you're Dr. Robinson at this point. Right. So what did your academic journey, you mentioned that you went to Catholic school, but mm -hmm. what did your academic journey look like in high school? And what were your aspirations uh, at that point? My journey, so I went to an all boys high school in the Bronx, Cardinal Hayes High School. Um, it was the high school that I chose to go to. Um, but at the same time, I didn't like it because mm -hmm. it had so much structure and discipline that I felt stifled. But, in, it, you know, as I look back on it, and I realized this years ago, it was probably a better decision for me to go to that school because it, it taught me self-control. It taught me how to be organized, how to, how to keep track of doing things on time and to a certain degree, how to be excellent in my work. But I wasn't, I was an average student. 
I don't think I applied myself the way I probably could have. Um, initially, going into high school, I was placed in an honors uh, class for my freshman and sophomore year of high school, but I didn't do the work to the level that I was able to do it. Um, college wasn't something that I really thought about maybe until my senior year. Mm. Uh, what I wanted to do was go into something that had to do with criminal justice. But again, college, how I was going to do that, I, I really didn't have a plan. And what were the conversations that you were having with your dad at the time? Right. Like, was it just for him, like, do whatever you so choose? You should go to college. College isn't the way. Was he providing any guidance there? No. Okay. Um, my father didn't finish high school. Um, he wasn't familiar with the process of applying for college. What do you do? How do you do this thing? So really, I had to depend on my guidance counselor and friends to kind mm-hmm. of figure it out. What I did know was that I didn't want to stay in New York City at that time. Mm-hmm. You can imagine this is 89, 90, Harlem. It, it was just, for lack of a better term, it was kind of like a war zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew, although I love the community so much and so much of it is inside of me, that it was probably to my advantage to lead that community. So I didn't have the support of anyone helping me fill out applications or, you know, figure out how to write essays or picking which school was going to be best for me to attend. It was really, I picked my college based on how far it was and knowing that it was still in the state and that my parents wouldn't be able to contact me um, in person because we didn't have a car. <laughs> that, that, that was really how I picked my college. And, you know, it's crazy because you mentioned earlier your guidance counselor and it's it's like guidance is in the name. But we've talked to so many people on the show already who like I had a guidance counselor, but they didn't do anything. I was still figuring it out. And, you know, and there are some amazing counselors and people who work in academia, but there are a lot of people just pushing paper Mm -hmm. and and checking boxes as well, Mm -hmm. which sounds like your experience leaned more towards that end of the spectrum. Yeah, he he did minimal work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so where did you end up? What school did you end up? At? SUNY Oswego. Okay, SUNY Oswego. You had an interest in in criminal justice, which Clearly. they didn't have. They didn't have a criminal justice major, so I was at at one point it shifted from criminal justice to social work. Okay. Um, and they didn't have a social work major either, but they had sociology. Again, not really understanding majors in the college process. The, the the root word, socio, to me was like, okay, this must be close to social work. They have sociology, so I'll, I'll, I'll study that. Um, I knew it had to deal with understanding people, and that was enough for me because I, I tend to be a people person. I like observing people, so that was the major I chose. So going from somebody who started college and honors programs but wasn't necessarily doing the work or uh, applying himself in the way you might expect how was the how was the adjustment to college for you that adjustment was the academic adjustment wasn't as difficult as the social environmental mm. adjustment again being from Harlem surrounded by primarily black people everywhere i went everything i saw was my people now I go to the school that's 350 miles away, upstate New York, on the border of Canada, and the majority of the students don't look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a predominantly white institution. There are, 
when I get there, there are other black students and students of color that attend, but the majority of the students are white and it's cold. And I'm talking about a, a cold that most New Yorkers don't really understand. <laughs> um, so that first semester, oh, and, and I think it's important to add, I wanted to go to Howard, mm. that was my dream school. So I just wanted that whole black experience, that HBCU experience, um, wasn't able to do that. And now I'm at this predominantly white institution and I'm like, what in the world is going on here? This, this is not what I signed up for. But fortunately, there was a community there. There was a community because there were a significant number of students that were from the New York City area or other cities um, within the state, Syracuse, Buffalo, Rochester. There were students of color from those communities as well. So because there weren't many of us, we formed our own community and we had our own support group within one another or with one another. And do you feel like having that support group, even though you're in this predominantly white environment, really pushed you? Because a lot of people have an evolution where they really lean further into their Black identity in college, mm -hmm. whether you're at a PWI or an HBCU. You know, you're taking these classes, you're educating yourself, your eyes are being open to a lot of things. Was that mm -hmm. your experience? You felt like it, it kind of caused you to embrace your identity even more? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, and I say yes and no because many people, or, or many of us identified with coming from um, urban centers or inner cities. And being from Harlem is a little bit different. It's, it's, a, it's a different type of inner city experience because of the, the, the cultural history of Harlem. So there's a different sense of pride, I think, um, coming out of that community. So going to Oswego didn't really strengthen it. But because I was surrounded by so many non-students of color or white students, I became more, um, what's the word, more of, more of an activist, mm. taking on more of an activist type of mentality to show the importance and the, the pride of being a Black male or a Black student at that college. And how did that manifest itself, you know, this, this newfound activism? So my freshman year, I wound up pledging a predominantly Black fraternity. My junior year, I was president of the Black Student Union. So those two experiences in and of itself really kind of helped shape my experience mm -hmm. in college. Yeah, the, well, the pledging alone and doing that so early in your college career. <laughs> right. <laughs> that That's no small feat in and of yeah. itself. Yeah. So you're, you're having this experience where you've now embraced campus life. Mm-hmm. You know, for all intents and purposes, you're in a different major than what you went in having an interest in. So as a sociology major, what were you envisioning for your career at that point? I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. I was like, I'm just going to take these classes and um, just keep going. I, I, I wasn't kind of similar to high school. I wasn't much focused on academics mm -hmm. because I was so involved in other things. I, I was involved in a lot of extracurricular and co-curricular activities. Pretty much everything you can think of that there is to do in college, I was involved in it. From being an orientation leader for the summer um, to, as I said, being in a, a you know fraternity to being president of BSU to volunteering for you know different type of uh, research projects, just a whole slew of things that I got involved in working in the leadership office on campus. My college experience was more about the 
out of class experience than it was the in class experience. But I, I did well enough to graduate and move on. So at graduation, mm-hmm. where were you situated? Were you thinking, all right, I got to figure this out? Or had you sort of come up with a path at that point? So my second semester senior year, I still not, I still had not figured it out. I had no idea what I was going to do. In my mind, I, it was like, I guess I'll just go back to Harlem and find a job. Um, fortunately, I had a frat brother who proposed the idea to me of applying for the graduate program at Oswego in counseling. Mm. And his whole thing was because I was in an educational opportunity program, it provided me the opportunity to get funding to help pay for grad school. And his thing was, we here, we would probably get into the program. Why not get your master's and then, you know, move on? So I said, okay, you know what? I love college so much. And, you know, to do another two years, again, not really thinking about the academic part of it. I'm like, I could stay here for another two years and, you know, take some more classes and come out with a master's degree. I said, that'll work. And uh, that's that's the path that I took. So was the master's program different? Was it a different experience then? Because, you know, a different level of work, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are more profo- focused at that point. On, OK, am, am I getting my my doctorate right after this or, or what? Mm-hmm. So were you buckled down at that point and, and really focused during graduate school? So I got accepted into the graduate program. On a conditional acceptance. Oh, because, okay. Because my GPA wasn't stellar, um, but they saw that I had the potential. So they accepted me on a conditional basis. I had to meet certain requirements within the first semester. And if I was able to meet those requirements, then they would accept me formally into the program. I had to finagle my way through that process as well. Uh, but I did get formal approval, um, formal admission into the program. And it was different because in grad school, it's not so much about rote memory. It's really about application and how you think and your and and finding your own individual voice. So the way that the professors or instructors teach or 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 deal with you is very different than your instructors on the undergraduate level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the tests are formatted differently. The type of discussions that you have in class are different. It's not so much about being right or wrong, but again, it's more about how you can. Um, apply a particular theory to a real life situation um, or how you understand a particular theory and things of that nature. So it, it I, I thrived in grad school doing my master's. My GPA was way better than it was as an undergrad. And I think that was primarily due to the way the information was presented, the way I understood it and the different types of conversations that took place in the classroom. And I think I'm glad you you talked about that trajectory because, and we could talk more about your current role mm-hmm. and what you do, but I think often, you know, we're still as a society in these academic institutions and also uh, in professional settings, we look at a, ser- a set of criteria mm-hmm. and we say, does this student, right, or this candidate meet the criteria? And if they don't, it's like, well, that's an indicator that they're not going to be successful here. Mm-hmm. When the reality of it is a lot of people have potential that has just not been tapped into yet. Right. Or they haven't been given the right setting for their learning capabilities and for mm-hmm. for their ability to thrive. And it's hard to look at things in in black and white. So you look at your your story where you had a guidance counselor, but really wasn't invested in the process. You just knew you wanted to get away. Right. Obviously had the chops, but maybe had not applied them yet. Then come you know coming through undergrad and displaying leadership capability, ability mm-hmm. to organize all those things is there, but it's not coming out in your your academics, 
making a decision to go to grad school and them giving you the opportunity, mm-hmm. giving you the wrong, a short one, one semester, but giving mm-hmm. you the wrong way to, to really get in there and show them that you belonged. And then having that experience where it sort of clicks on for you and you start to thrive, I think is a great example mm-hmm. of how you cannot push people into a category or, or try to label what you think the limits are on their potential because they're not meeting some antiquated set of, you know, factors that are supposed to determine the success. Right, right, right. And um, I think one other thing I didn't mention about my, under, well, my college experience was that although I went to a predominantly white school, I was fortunate enough to have two black male mentors mm. that worked at the school. One was my EOP advisor and the other was the director of the leadership office on campus. And they really had an impact on me as a freshman. Because until that time, I never really had a close relationship or seen a professional Black male who was able to also connect with me mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of relate to me on my level. So that that was really different because they didn't allow us to, and I say us, the other students, they didn't allow us to be mediocre. They demanded that we go above and beyond and be excellent. And I think I've carried that with me, that whole sense of excellence. That's very important to me as I do the work that I'm doing now with my children, really having them understand the importance of being excellent and not competing against other people, but competing against yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you know, there there's something to be said for Black men, especially who work in these environments. And mm-hmm. shout out to the Black women administrators mm-hmm. as well, um, who work in, at PWIs. But find the black students and say, okay, you know, I know I might be responsible for you because of EOP or what have you, mm-hmm. but I'm gonna make sure um, that that you are maximizing this opportunity for, right. for your benefit. There's especially when you come, if you come from a family where there's no blueprint mm-hmm. and parents have not gone to school, they don't know what that's like. Those examples and models on camp- campus um, and the people that parent in a lot of ways too is just so crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So now you're in this counselor program. At that point, did you have some clarity about what you wanted to do professionally? Yes. I wanted to stay in higher education <laughs> uh, because now I'm looking at it and I'm like, OK, wait a minute. I, I actually did, uh, did my graduate assistantship in the leadership office on campus. OK. So I started to understand because at that time it wasn't really something I think that people intentionally went to school for. Mm-hmm. And that's higher education administration. It, it was new. It was a new uh, field. But I started to understand that you can be a professional working in higher education. So still really being connected to that community and being an inspiration to students that are coming through, um, that are, you know, starting their college process and progressing through graduation. And that was one of the things that was important to me as I continue my education, really reaching back to younger students who were coming into Oswego and helping them, um, helping guide them through the college process, just understanding what classes to take. How do you, how do you um, interact with instructors? How do you make your niche on campus? You know, how do you show your authenticity or find yourself? Things like that. That was something that just kind of came naturally to me. So I said, okay, if this is something um, that I find that I enjoy doing and it can actually turn into a career, I think this is what I want to do long term. And that's when it kind of clicked. 
And I started looking for jobs in higher education while I was completing my master's degree. Mm -hmm. And when did you make the decision to get a doctorate? Oh, that didn't happen for another 20 years. That's what I was going to ask. Well, like, if you told me yeah. that you went right through, I was about well, to be like, kudos to you, brother. You know what? Let me let me take a step back. That's not entirely true. I did apply for a few doctorate programs when I was completing my master's. Mm -hmm. um, so I always knew that I wanted to obtain a doctorate degree. And I did apply, but I didn't get accepted to the programs I applied to at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, returning back, well, I didn't come back to New York. I'd taken a job. My first job was in Massachusetts. Um, so I kind of put the doctoral program on the back burner. And then, you know, you get older, life happens, you have other responsibilities, and the opportunity didn't present itself until much later. So I often wonder when you have someone like you who has had this upbringing, had this experience, you were afforded an opportunity or opportunities, and then you have the chance to work with kids and young adults who mm -hmm. are just like you and who have walked your path. Mm -hmm. Do you find that sometimes guiding these kids and hearing their experiences, do they call up memories for you in any way about your own experience? Or have you had a moment of reckoning where it kind of takes you back? to the things that have shaped you as well? Um, with some students, yes. With Not with every student, though. There mm -hmm. are um, some students that I encounter here and there that I see myself in them. And, you know, I've, I am able to develop a particular type of relationship with them. And it's interesting because there's a young man that attends the college that I work at now who I see a lot of myself in him. Mm -hmm. um, and we've developed what I would consider a strong relationship. So it, it does happen. And that's why I do the work that I do to show them not to, not to, not in a bragging way or a boastful way, but I think there's, it's important to allow students to see who you are when you're working with them. Mm -hmm. And if I'm able to share with them, if I'm able to, to kind of lift the veil and allow myself to be slightly vulnerable and share my experience with them. And they know what my background is. And now they can see that I'm not much different from them. And I am have been able to attain this level of achievement. That becomes an inspiration, hopefully, for them. And they mm -hmm. say, you know what, if Dr. Robinson or if Mr. Robinson can do it, I can do it as well. And do you have you been put in a situation, you know, we, we hear about EOP and these programs mm -hmm. that are designed um, to create access and opportunity. Do you think that part of your job requires not just guiding the students, but also advocating on their behalf? Absolutely. That, that's mm -hmm. that's one of the key pillars of the EOP program is advocacy, mm -hmm. um, empowerment, things of that nature. So part of it is helping students develop and understand the power of their voice. Mm -hmm. And Again, when you're coming from a marginalized community or a community where um, you may not have received the support that you should have, you don't know how to speak for yourself. So it's important to have someone on the campus that can kind of be your advocate, but not an enabler. And I think sometimes what happens is you have administrators, faculty who fall into this space of feeling sorry for the students and being an enabler for them and not teaching them how to advocate for themselves. And that's a process that you have to learn um, as a student. So being able to, again, push them to be excellent 
and teach them really step by step how to advocate for themselves. Because what students don't realize is in in the higher education world, they have the they have the most power and the strongest voice. But they don't know that. They don't they don't understand that. And being able to help them realize that and develop the a level of savvy to to leverage their power is something that's critical. And do you ever have those moments where you think to yourself, I could be investing in or pouring into the next Barack Obama? Or, you know, do you have those moments where you, you realize you the gravity of what you do and, and not only that is creating access and opportunity, but also you may be changing the trajectory of someone else, someone else's life where they can make an impact that they may not have even thought about for themselves. It happens. Mm-hmm. Here and there is one of the things that you have to keep center, because if you get caught up in the work, sometimes you can lose focus. Um, but you have to, or at least for me, as, as a college administrator, you it, you have to kind of connect with your passion and the reason why you do the work that you do. And it's not for the paycheck. It's not for the recognition. It's really, for me, about the students. Again, empowering them, being an advocate for them. Um, helping them see that there's a bigger reward for them at the end of the journey um, and pushing them, really, really pushing them. Some of them have never been pushed because they've never been taught to understand that they can be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, no one has really poured into them in that way and given them the motivation to 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 see something greater. A lot of students like us go to college because their parents have forced them to go to college or they have aspirations that I won't be, I won't say are too great, but may not be realistic based on what their, what their capabilities are. Right. Um, so helping them really understand how to choose a major and what's going to be the, the best career choice for them um, and how to apply that major to what it is that they want to do is, is important. So I do see it and I try to keep it again at center as most, as much as possible. When Absolutely. Well, students. So you mentioned, you know, it took 20 years to get back to mm-hmm. the doctorate piece. And then so at one point you're back in school, but also you, you got some stuff going on personally while mm-hmm. that's happening as well. So what space were you in in your life when you did decide to to go back to school for your doctorate? Um, so prior to starting the doctorate, I was going through a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um. I was also raising two teenagers. I was in a job that was still on my career path, but not necessarily what I wanted to do. Um, So I I wouldn't say I was necessarily happy in that role. Um, In the process of of, uh, selling a house, in the process of getting adjusted to a new relationship, it was a lot going on at that time. And I thought I was probably a little crazy to take on a doctorate at that time. And it was an accelerated program. So it wasn't a traditional program where you do three years of coursework and then start writing. This was a program that was designed to be completed in two, two and a half years. Mm. But you know, that, that where I was, it, it was one of those situations where the opportunity presented itself and there was no other time to do it. It was either do it now or you're probably not going to do it, figure mm-hmm. it out. I had to figure it out. And fortunately enough, I was able to figure it out. But I think if I didn't do it at that time, I would have lost that opportunity forever. 
So, you know, you, you hear about people obviously going through divorce, which is traumatic in and of itself. And mm-hmm. it's a lot of layers, but often the story is I got divorced. I moved out of the marital home. I have joint custody of my kids. You know, we make it work. We happily co-parent. You hear a lot less often about a father mm-hmm. raising the kids and taking kids in, which is mm-hmm. which is your story. So how did that come about? Um, it was a, a mutual decision mm-hmm. between my ex-wife and I. I felt it was important for my kids to maintain that relationship with me. But also, um, I wouldn't say it was out of convenience, but it, it was out of more necessity because I was living, um, my new living space was in an area that had a, a very good school district, a public school district. So the agreement was that they would come stay with me and attend high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, w- I would do the work. That was it. It, it wasn't something I had to really think about. It wasn't something I had to 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 mull over. Those are my kids. I, I'm responsible for them. So it, it, it wasn't a hard ask or it wasn't even an ask. It was a willingness from me to say, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And losing your mom so early and you mentioned having that nurturing piece from her. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you tapped into that as a father, right? That considering especially that you lost it so early Mm -hmm. that you do aspire to be the nurturer in addition to the disciplinarian, you know, the the person that's meant to provide and guide, does that softer side come out with you as well? It does. I think in raising my children, I have a son and a daughter and and raising them, I took a little bit of both of my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to be the nurturer, but also be the, one who kind of gave them the up and up or the the, the real deal. Um, so I never sugarcoated anything with them. I never talked to them um, in a way that, how could I explain it? Uh, like they were little kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I talked to them in an appropriate manner, but I wanted them to really understand where they were, what was going on, uh, what was important for them in life that, you know, um, would put them on a better path. So it was, it was a little bit of my father, a little bit of my mother, uh, probably more of my mother, because I am a disciplinarian. Again, going back to that whole idea of excellence, that's not just something that I instill in students that I work with, but also in my children. Mm-hmm. I want them to be excellent. I want them to always put their best foot forward, to, um, to always understand that they can do whatever they put their mind to. So that came out a lot in, in me raising them. And I got to ask your your opinion on this. I'm shifting gears a bit. But okay. recently there were headlines around doing away with talented and gifted programs. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that, that those those are going away. People have strong opinions about that. Um, most, I think, within our community see it as a good thing mm-hmm. uh, that those programs are going away. What's your view um, on eliminating talent and gifted? That's a good question. Um, and I, I have seen the news around, um, you know, eliminating those programs. I think it, it, it those types of programs may serve a good purpose, but it also isolates mm-hmm. a large population of students because how do we define talented and gifted? You know, whose lens are we defining it by? And you may have one child that displays, you know, certain talents and gifts, 
But if that's not how you define talents and gifts, you're going to overlook that child. And -hmm. I don't think that's fair. So we really need to change the lens, how we define talented and gifted and open those types of programs up to everyone. Absolutely. And I think you, your story is an example of how a student may hit their stride later. So to to label someone and put them on a track based, in, based on whatever giftings they display at six years old or what have you, whatever the age is, is just a, is really misguided, quite frankly. Right. right. For sure. And I, I think part of it is in the school system, you don't have many people um, or many individuals. And part of it is the structure and part of it is the motivation from the 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 teachers to really get to know the students Mm -hmm. um, and to understand what their talents and gifts are. Because if we're just basing talents and gifts on math and science scores or certain aptitudes, that's not how you define talents and gifts. Mm -hmm. You know, because I can score well on a particular test that may be biased in the first place. that's 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 not my definition of talented and gifted. For sure. And, and so also, I'm sorry, also, when you have students that come from uh, more humble beginnings, mm-hmm. there's certain skills that they learn in how to get certain things accomplished. That in and of itself is a talent and a gift because you're making a way out of no way sometimes. Mm-hmm. And everybody can't do that. So there's, there's a certain level of... Uh, rigor or grit or, 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 um, there's a word I'm, I'm trying to remember what it is that I want to use and it's not coming to me right now, but there's a, there's a certain disposition that you have to have that you develop learning how to deal with struggle. And that, that in in and of itself can kind of bring out your talents and your gifts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I pray that we, we get to a point where we stop labeling intelligence or talent in such a narrow minded fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we have all these great stories now you hear about with some of the people that we consider trailblazers that are like, oh, I didn't do well in school. or I got fired from every job right. that I got until they were able to tap into whatever their thing was or their talent, uh, which speaks to just the, our resilience as a people as well. Right. Um, that we, we, we find a way or make one. And those are those are valuable skills, no matter what professional or academic or educational path you take. It's a question of whether your mentors, administrators, teachers can see that in you and honor that and help you to nurture nurture those giftings and talents. And I think that's where, you know, however we may feel about talent and gifted, I think that's where these educational opportunity programs come in and provide an incredible benefit, particularly for kids like you who have no blueprint mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. <laughs> had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I would say the day I had to defend my dissertation. Mm. Um, probably one of the most challenging days that, that I, I can remember. Because, again, just going back to the beginning of the doctoral journey, um, I'm entering a classroom for the first time in 20 years, like physically entering a classroom, sitting in a chair and taking notes. I hadn't done that in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of imposter syndrome that creeps in. And that is, and, and most of the, uh, most of my classmates were younger and or continuing through their education. So they were not very far removed from completing their master's degree. 
So now I have this 20 year gap and I'm going into this accelerated doctoral program trying to figure out what I want to study, you know, understanding different theories and practices of leadership or executive leadership and writing a dissertation and having to defend it Mm -hmm. um, and seek someone else's approval that I am the expert on this particular topic. So just the preparation. And again, if you go back in our conversation, when I talk about excellence, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, to be excellent, not to be perfect, but to be excellent. So uh, there's a little bit of OCD that's involved in that, you know, double checking everything and, and, and crossing my T's and dotting my I's. That that was a hard day. Um, and I, I would say that I was able to perform extraordinary, extraordinarily in an, on an ordinary day because outside of that, there was nothing different about that day. It was a regular day. Nothing else happened for anybody else. It would just so happen that that day I was defending my work and I was successful in doing that. So I, I would pick that day. That's the date that I would identify with to answer your question. And did you, when you successfully defended your your dissertation, you know, some people have the temperament where they're like, okay, that's behind me. And mm-hmm. then other people have this euphoric moment of like, I finally, I've arrived after, mm-hmm. you know, this entire professional educational journey. I am here I'm done it. And they, they stand in that and they celebrate it. Where did you fall on the Richter scale once that defense was successful? So I celebrated all summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Yeah. I celebrated all summer. I might still be celebrating two years later. I'm not sure. Um, but no, I, 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 I celebrated it. Um, and then it, it, it became, okay, now I have it. Am I going to do anything with it? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what, what was behind it? Part of it was self, self-serving. self um, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. But the other part of it was to leave some type of legacy for my children. Mm-hmm. Um, because I wanted them to understand that their father was breaking a generational curse or whatever you want to call it. Their grandparents didn't graduate from college. Their grandparents didn't go to college. Um, their grandfather didn't finish high school. Um, you know, there was, like I mentioned, the whole substance abuse in the history of their family as it relates to my side. But now as they get older um, and plan on attending college and hopefully finishing college, they can look back and say, my father is Dr. Robinson, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, it's interesting because I live in a suburban community and the high school that my children attended is predominantly white. And, you know, they, they have friends um, and they talk amongst their friends. And there's a certain pride that they can carry when they tell their friends, yes, my father is a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there's a little bit of that. But I did it mostly for them so that they would have something to hold on to um, long after I'm gone. And, and to set that example, to be an inspiration for them um, to achieve at their highest level. But have you now looking looking back after two years, have you dreamed a new dream for your career at this stage? Um, not necessarily for my career, but for my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I've been in higher education since I was 25 years old um, and that's over 20 years. I don't know if this is what I'm going to continue to do. Um, the doctorate gives me a different level of flexibility and leverage because it's not in higher education. It's in, it's in executive leadership. So it affords me the opportunity to um, 
kind of play with the entrepreneurial waters, um, to go into nonprofit, to seek out opportunities as a CEO or a vice president of a company, um, because I understand, you know, leadership on that level. So it's not so much about my career in higher education, but just how I'm going to plan the rest of my life. Um, because I was fortunate enough to start my career at an early age. And, you know, what I have maybe 25 years in, I can do another 25 years and do something completely different. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. You know, so we talked about dreaming a new dream for yourself, but thinking about your kids Mm -hmm. is their choice, obviously, but I'm just curious, what fields would you like to see them go into? I wouldn't like, I would like them. I would like to see them go in the field that they're most happy in. Mm-hmm. Um, my son is in his first year of college and he's pursuing a bachelor's degree in physical education. Um, and my daughter is in her senior year of high school. Uh, so she's going through the college application process and she wants to go into real estate and I'm fine with that. Good, good answer, dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> the only pressure is that you, you got to go to college. And, and, and do, do all things in excellence. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> So I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Tell the people where they can find you online. Oh, um, so Instagram, you can find me under the, what is it, heading or handle, whatever they call mm-hmm. it, um, Harlem Scholar. And I'm also on Facebook under Jarrell W. Robinson. And he is on LinkedIn, ladies and gentlemen. If you yes. want the more at the professional network, he is there right. for sure. Right, Yes. Well, thank you for spending this time with us, to our listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, comment. I am deeply appreciative of the level of candor. You know, it's not always easy to talk about the difficult seasons or the things that we've experienced that no doubt have shaped us into the people that we are um, today, but also that it's our own personal trauma that, that we hold close. So I'm appreciative, Dr. Robinson, that you've come on. Um, and and made made it known what you what you've gone through and how it has shaped you. So I ask our listeners if something has resonated with you, tell somebody else about this episode. If you are going through the grieving process or have been through something traumatic, I hope you pull something um, and and can hold on to it from this episode that might help you. And last, but certainly not least, I say it every week. You all know what to do. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.